Amen. Church, as you remain standing, as we read God's Word this morning, uh, let us hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 8. And we're going to pick up in verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you continue in My Word, you really are My disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they said to him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we will become free? Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits a sin, commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that, 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 that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. You weren't born of sexual morality. I'm sorry, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Because I came from God, and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I, what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are from your father the devil, and you want to carry out all your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does, what, does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie... He speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's word. This is why you don't listen, because you do not. Because you are not from God. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so hopefully, I tried to distribute these as much as I could around the room. There's a few more here on the front uh, uh, row of chairs here if you want to. But this is a little sermon guide. I had several people um, ask me over the last few weeks to start if, if we could offer this. And we used to do this a long time ago. And, um, and if it's a help, then we'll, I'll provide it. And so we're going to start providing a, you know, 50 or 60 of these out here. They'll be on the table outside. You come in and uh, just grab those. Just make sure you have your bulletin, have your sermon guide, because you're going to need them for the worship service. It's going to be helpful to you as well. Um, again, we're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have Bibles out in the hallway. You can grab one, and you're going to want to find your way to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking for these first, these 16 verses together this morning um, as we uh, continue to make our way through the gospel of, of John. I don't know about you, but I feel like I get pummeled every day. I mean, just beat up. And when I say getting beat up, it, it comes some in the form of, of, of this. Um, if you were a true Christian, you would have more passion for fill in the blank. If, if you really love God, you would stand up against you know what? If you really loved God's word, you would be speaking up about. Fill in the blank however you wish to fill in the blank there. 
Now, of course, indeed, Christians are called to speak truth. Now, we've, you've heard me say this many, many times. But my guess is that you've probably heard these things recently, a lot recently. It's hard to engage in the world and, and not see people's very reductionistic memes that are on social media and or maybe the, the latest uh, uh, evangelical pastor out there, perhaps even reformed pastor, admonishing the faithful about what it means to be a faithful Christian in our day and age. And again, some of those things can be very, very helpful. Um, guy one will say something like, well, I see all the people out here suffering and dying, so you know what, if you really loved your neighbor, you would. Right? Guy number two rebuts and says, well, you know what, I see all the cultural forces bearing down on us, and if you really were a true Christian, you would. At the end of all these sentences, it would be something like, Christians need to act like Christians. Right? You want to sum it up, that's, Christian, you need to act like a Christian. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad that's true, because there is some truth to that. But the reality is, is what does it mean to act like a Christian? Because I'm, I'm fearful that the, 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 the two don't match, right? That sometimes we, we associate what we fill in the blank here, right? As that's what it means to be a Christian. But I'm wondering if that squares with what we're going to see here in Jesus' words today. Does it real, what does it mean for us to be Christian, does, does zeal automatically, is it automatically equal to faithfulness? Is, is zeal automatically the same thing as deep belief and rest in, in Christ? It can be an absolutely dizzying reality to funnel through all these different things that are just thrown at us on a daily basis, isn't it? It's deflating, it's discouraging. But I wonder if that's the measure if these things that are said to us and we hear all the time are truly the measure of true faith in Christ. Now, I actually think there's a better way. And I think we're going to see that better way in Jesus' words this morning. And that better way is what you find there in your sermon guide, the sermon summary, the genuine faith. And I want to, I mean, this is going to be, we're going to plow this one out a lot today. Genuine faith is resting entirely on both, um, both to save I'm sorry, resting entirely on Jesus, sorry, both to save and to keep us through his finished work, to provide us full justification, full justification, not partial justification, like he does a little bit of it, you got to come the rest of the distance yourself, that Jesus actually provides ongoing sanctification through his spirit, and then ultimately will provide us ultimate sanct uh, glorification when we meet Jesus one day. So much, so much of what we are seeing in the world today, that the wars, the battles, and I know I've been saying this a lot lately because this is the world we're living in. I feel like as your pastor, I need to kind of sit there and, and see the text we are, you know, we're wrestling with this morning and apply these things to that world what we are all wrestling with, right? And so that's going to be our aim this morning, to see and understand from Jesus' words what genuine faith actually is to, to juxtapose what genuine faith is versus phony faith because that's the question everyone wants us to know what does it mean to be a real genuine believer in, in christ what does it mean for us to be faithful to christ if you will what does that look like for us this morning now I, I, that that's that's going to help us this morning as we begin to think about where we've been in the text over the last few weeks and here's where we've been light versus darkness 
Remember, that's been the bigger picture. We started building it out last week a little bit more clearly. That the light and, the, and darkness is the main framework on which, along with main frameworks that Jesus, John builds this entire gospel off of. And last, year, last week in chapter 8, he tells us straight plainly, Jesus is the light of the world. He makes this grand declaration about Jesus being the light. Now, the question that I want to ask this morning before we jump into this portion of our text is to ask yourself, what is the function of light? What is Jesus' function in, of this light? Because if we don't understand what light he's bringing into the world, or that he is the light of the world, then, and we don't understand its function, then sometimes we'll misunderstand what it means for him to be the light. And, and there's two sides of Jesus' light that we need to rest with. One, light does what? It, it helps us see. Right? Ultimately, you light up this room. You can see in this room. This morning in the classroom that we have in our new members class in, one of the lights was out when I first came in there, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's really dark and dim in here. Somehow or another it came on when I walked away. I don't really know what happened, but it, it, you know, it was very dark. It was going to be very not fun to do class in that room this morning, but it, ultimately it came back on. If that had not come on, it would have been hard to have meaningful conversation. Light helps us see, but there's a second part of light that we don't oftentimes think about. Light blinds us, right? Like you walk out of this building, and of course it's a rainy day, so this is going to be a hard illustration, but if you walk out of this building this afternoon when we leave the building here in about an hour or so, and we, we walk out there and it was a nice sunny day, and you've been inside all day long, what's going to happen when you walk outside? Like you're not going to be able to see. You're going to have, it's just going, you're, like you're going to go blind, you're going to start seeing spots in front of your eyes, Right? So light has two functions a lot of times. It has, it has this function of helping us see, but oftentimes also light blinds us. Well, that's what we've been seeing here in John's text. That there are some who see Jesus because he is a true light, and therefore they truly believe. We saw this back in chapter 6. Verse 67 through 69, when all the people are leaving Jesus after he's been teaching, he, he goes to his disciples and Jesus said to the twelve, don't you want to go away too? And, and Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe that, and know that you are the one true holy one of God. So there are some who see the light and what happens? They're not blinded by it. They actually see. But then John says there are all those who get the light and they're actually blinded by it. They're blinded by Christ's light, and they ultimately deny his light because they can't truly see who he is. And again, that goes back to the people just before that in John chapter 6 who had left because his teaching was too hard. Or back in chapter, five, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, when the, we find out that the brothers of Jesus who've lived in the household with Jesus you know, all their entire life, they don't believe in Jesus. How could they not? I mean, the light's been with them the entire time, and they could not see or in verse 20 of chapter 7, it says you have a demon, so they they're, they're actually think he's the one who's got a demon in him, and you're trying, uh, in him. Or, or verse 30 through 32, when they tried to seize him and arrest him several times, but they couldn't do it because they couldn't see everything that he was doing. Or lastly, verses 45 through 52 of that same chapter, you know, all these people are coming back to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and they're just antagonistic and hostile to Jesus. All of this reinforces what we learn in 8.13, right? So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself and your testimony is not valid. They, 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 they can't see who he truly is. Now all that's important for us this morning because 
There's a third category that we're going to stumble into this morning. Not just those who see with light, not just those who are blind by light, but those who think they see, but actually still are blind. That's a whole other category that Jesus is going to explore this morning. And that's what we're going to see here this morning. As we, as we see, as we left off last week, it says, And he was saying to these things, as he was saying these things about him being the light of the world, many believed in him. And so we pick up in verse 31 this morning, and he's now talking directly to these people who say they believe. And we're going to find out by the end of this, they actually don't believe. And so what we want to take from this this morning in this third category is to, is to then begin to do evaluation of ourselves and say, do I have true faith? Do I have true belief? Do I have genuine belief? Or do I have some form of phony or pseudo belief? Some, some, have, uh, some type of phony or pseudo faith, right? Well, that's where we pick up here in verse 31. And we're going to see two things here in your, in your text. It's two main, three major points, and we're going to build them out. One is going to be the anchor of our genuine faith, and then the second is going to be the marks of genuine faith. And then we're going to kind of, and so what's going to happen in this, this text, let me give, kind of give you a little high view here, is that Jesus is going to lay out a really specific truth here in these first two or three verses. And then he's going to end up in a, in a debate with the people, these people who say they believe with him just after he makes this, this statement. Okay? The statement is the anchor of true faith, of genuine belief. Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now there's, there's two things here that come out of these two verses that are fundamental to what it means to be genuine of genuine belief, genuine faith. The first is what we find here in verse 31. If you continue in my word. we got to do work on what does Jesus mean if you continue in my word. Well, the word to continue in my word actually is what Jesus is encouraging to do is to press in to what he himself has revealed about what God has promised and revealed through himself. So in other words, what Jesus is saying, to, to continue in my word at this particular point didn't have a bound up Bible like you and I have. It was to continue into what God has revealed. God has made promises and he's kept those promises in Jesus. So to continue in his word, is to, to be a disciple, is to say it is to continue in Christ. That Christ is the fulfillment of it all. That Christ is the hope of all of the promises that God has made. It, conf it, it confronts, in a lot of ways, a lot of times how you and I, if we're not careful, how we use the Bible. Because a lot of times when we read this text, if you continue my word, we'll go through this text and we'll start picking out all kinds of things that we think are measures of a true Christian, right? We talked about this in our membership class this morning, right? Um, you know, if, 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 if you haven't, um, if you don't drink, you don't chew, don't date girls who do, right? That, that kind of mentality, we pick that out and we say, well, that's what it means to continue in God's word. But that's not what Jesus means here at all. What Jesus means here is that you would continue into what he himself is revealing about the promises of God. That Jesus is the absolute ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. And that when we read the Bible, that sets the course for how we read this Bible and study it, right? We read this Bible redemptively. 
Not grammatically, although we do read it grammatically, but we, re- we read it redemptively. We see the story of redemption coming off the pages from Genesis to Revelation so that we might see Jesus. And so when Jesus says, continue in my word, he is helping us see that the entirety of God's self-revelation, everything that God has revealed about himself, friends, to us in the scriptures, is, is gospel, is redemption. And if you want to put those things down into further categories, it's, it's law and gospel. That if you read the Bible, two things should be evident to you as you read through it. One, that God has established a plumb line. That plumb line is himself. And that plumb line is his law. And his law is the standard of all things, of all times and all places, because it's not something that was established outside of him. It is very much established through him and from him because he himself is the fullness of all of the law. So the law is what we see established in the scriptures. And the law only does a couple of things. It, one, sets the standard of who God is, but two, it shows us how far we have fallen from that standard. But the other thing that we see throughout the scriptures is the gospel. It is the work of redemption that that we find that Jesus is accomplishing on his Father's behalf so that we might find, as I said in that first statement, full justification, ongoing sanctification, and ultimate glorification. My fear is when people say, if you are a true Christian, you would be standing up to X, Y, or Z. What they're doing with the Bible is they're using the Bible as just pure law. But the Bible is law and gospel. Law never saves anybody. Law reveals who we really are and we must repent to God, but it should lead us to the gospel. And so when we hear preachers and pastors or well-meaning Christians out there saying, if you really were a Christian, you would stand up to XYZ person or XYZ movement or this, that, or the other. And that's not what Jesus means by continuing in his word. And this was the problem for the Jews in Jesus' day. The problem for the Jews was they saw the law purely horizontally. If I do this, then I'm good here. They didn't see the law vertically. They saw it as, well, if I do this, then I'm going to be good. It was a standard of all of their works, all of their, the word is pietism, right? Their piety, how they, how they themselves are getting and self-improving themselves. So they would do all these good works and they would, do, they would avoid doing work on the Sabbath. They would wear these little phylactery boxes and put scripture verses in them so that they could then take the, the fullness of, of Deuteronomy 6 and say, well, hey, look, I'm, I'm putting the word of God on my frontlets of my forehead. They would do ridiculous things like that. They would uh, take the role of circumcision and would measure everyone based on whether you were circumcised or not. This is what Paul dealt with in Galatians. The point of it is they took the law and they stretched it beyond what, what our ability to be actually ever what we're supposed to do with it. The law can do nothing but establish who the right standard is and two, condemn those who don't meet it. So when you have the well-meaning Christians out there and pastors out there who are always saying, well, if you really were passionate about this, you would show that you're a true Christian, or you know, any number of ways you might say that, they're, they're probably not realizing, maybe you've been in this category. Maybe I've been in this category <laughs> of using the Bible as pure law. 
And friends, Christians do this today. We do it often. Listen closely to how Christians... Be careful what kind of things that you share. Be careful the things that you hear because you want to pay attention to what it is that they're actually offering as hope. So, again, just putting things in our current context, if you took the right stand on coronavirus, put the right stand on masks, put the right stand on vaccines, then you're showing you're a Christian. Wrong. Sinfully wrong. There's no gospel in that. There's no hope in that. It does nothing but condemn. Stand up for the tyranny of the magistrates. Now, that might be a legitimate problem we have to deal with, and I think we probably will have to deal with that as citizens of the United States or maybe of the world or however. But that is not a measure of a true Christian. It's not. Or the more popular things, right? If you remain sexually pure, you're showing yourself to be a Christian. When I was a youth pastor, I was part of that whole, what's the name of the group? The, 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 the little rings, little promise rings? Yeah, true love waits, that's it. Um, but um, I, understand the, I understand the idea behind it. It's not a bad idea. It's to encourage people to pursue purity. And, it, and there is something good, in it, good and godly in that, right? But a lot of times it's used to bludgeon sinners who need grace. Not actually encourage holiness. It becomes a standard by which we'll look at someone and say, you're in, you're out. It's just using the Bible as law. Taking good things, God says, good things that are pursuits of the Christian life, and they're making them redemptive things. They're taking the law and they're saying you can be redeemed by the law. You can't be redeemed by the law. Don't cuss, I said earlier. Don't chew and don't date girls who do. Right? Don't date a girl who chews. Okay? It's kind of disgusting. Even though, yeah, let's just just move on. All right? Read your Bible every day. Now, yes, of course we're supposed to read our Bible every day. We should read our Bible every day because we want to be closer to Jesus. But when you are measured by your spiritual disciplines, it becomes a law around your neck. Good things that we make God things become a bad thing because we take things and we elevate them and we say there's gospel in that and there's not. Now, obviously, reading the Bible and praying is can can enrich our gospel understanding and enrich our gospel experience and it can drive us closer to communion with Jesus, but that's not sometimes what we have said. Right? It's, it's, these, it's, it's the whole idea, if you grew up in a Baptist church, the little offering envelopes, right? And you used to have to check them off. Did I read my Bible this week? Did I pray this week? Did I give this week? It, it, was a, it, it, it may have had a worthy pursuit, but what it did was is it began to reestablish what it meant to be a Christian. What it meant to be genuinely Christ's. So the problem is we've, we, we, we have self-constructed piety. And self-constructed piety can be 
good as far as it allows us to rest in Christ, or it can be very, very bad insofar as it becomes another yoke around our neck. Self-constructed piety is self-justification. And self-justification is an assault on the gospel. There is no other way to put it. If anything you do, or you expect others to do, creates a burden that cannot be satisfied by the finished work of Christ, it is likely a yoke around your neck in preventing you from really resting in Christ. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, continue my word. That he himself is sent from the Father as both the law of law and grace. That he alone is the source of the full transformation. And everything you need is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And that's why he goes in that second part there in verse 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, the truth is, as we put there in your guide, the truth is knowing that is continuing Christ is the truth that sets us free. And knowing who Jesus is and what he has come to do is the truth that sets us free. That's the main idea that, we, that, that Jesus wants them to get to. You need me. You need me dying on the cross for your sins to pay for your sin debt. You need me to rise from the dead so that you himself can rise from the dead. You need me, and that's all you need. And so to continue in my word is to be a true disciple that rests in the truth that will set you free is to be resting entirely on Jesus and Jesus alone. And when we say Jesus alone, as I said in our members class this morning, is A-L-O-N-E, alone. Nothing else. And friends, we've got to understand that there is a world that is just enraptured around all of us. And we go into it every, week, every day and we, and we submit ourselves to its, to its teaching all the time. And we need to ask ourselves, is this creating another law in my life that Christ hasn't satisfied? If that's the case, we need to be aware of its effects on our lives. And these guys are doing the exact same thing. They, they, are, they, are, they are not continuing in his word. So this statement that Jesus is making here is so beautiful because it's revealing to these people who say in verse 30, they believe, and Jesus says, oh, oh so you say you believe. If you believe, you will continue in my word, and that word will set you free. Amen. Are you free? And that's actually the very first thing that they quibble with with Jesus as we get into this second point. As we look at these last few verses, we're going to see marks of genuine faith, and we're going to see it through the lenses of this disputation between Jesus and these people who say they believe. And the very first thing that we see, that the very first mark that we see this morning of genuine faith versus phony faith is that true sonship, we'll see here in verses 33 and on, exposes and frees us from sin's penalty while phony faith does not see the weight of our own sin. Jesus says the reason you don't know me is because you're not free. And so look what they say. The first debate. Three debates, three rebuttals by Jesus. They say there in verse 33, uh, we're, we're descendants of Abraham. They said to him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we will be free? Great 
Question. We've never been enslaved. In other words, what they're saying is, hey, you know what? Um, our gene pool is of Abraham. And uh, so we're good. Never been enslaved to anyone, which, by the way, is pretty hilarious, right? Because they had been enslaved in Egypt. They had been enslaved under Babylon, under Persia. They had been enslaved under Rome. It's just, by the way, one of the greatest things we can do through the gospel is become really, really aware people. And obviously, they are really unaware of their own surroundings. They were a people who were defined by slavery. Defined by slavery. Now, of course, in one sense, they are good. We know this. God made a promise with Abraham, and uh, he made some very amazing promises. But his promises weren't with their genealogical line, right? Just with their gene pool. His promises were rooted in God's gracious condescension to Abraham. So the promises have nothing to do with their DNA. Their promises have everything to do with God's spiritual DNA through his promises that he's embedding into Abraham, if you will. So that's what Jesus' rebuttal shows us this, right? Look what he says there in verse 34. Truly I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son does remain forever. So if, he is a son, so if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in, in, in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from your father. So what is Jesus saying in rebuttal to their, hey, we're, we're good, we're of Abraham? He's saying God came to Abraham, this pagan worshiper, to his father's house, and he offers Abraham heavenly sonship. Amen. He comes to this pagan guy, Abraham, in his father's house, rips him away from his idolatry and says, I'm going to offer you heavenly sonship. God's covenant love of Abraham provides the basis for all the relations Abraham had with God. All of them. Abraham offered not one aspect of this relationship with God. And neither do you and I. Anyone is Abraham in Abraham's line who doesn't understand their slavery and sin will have no part in God's covenant with Abraham. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look, the reality is you are not the son of God. You are not the son of Abraham. You're actually the son, he says, he's alluding to this, the son of the father of lies. And so therefore, you need to recognize I'm coming into the world so that you may have heavenly sonship. Remember it says there, the sin, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So phony faith then is not owning our slavery to sin and not recognizing our need of grace. I'm good. I was born a Baptist, I'll die a Baptist, right? I, uh, I was raised in the church. I was taught good morals and good values in the church. Great. And they may aid you. But that's not what makes you a son. A son 
is someone whom God invites because he condescends to us and invites us to be his sons. And Jesus says, you don't get Abraham. If you really were of Abraham, you would understand what Abraham was about or what God was doing with Abraham. And that leads us into the second disputation because this is where they go next, right? Well, we're descendants of Abraham. I actually know what, you know what? Actually, Abraham is our father, right? Abraham is our father, they say in verse 39. And they replied, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus would told them you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me and a man who has told you the truth that I, that, um, that I heard from God and Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. Again, he keeps going back to who their real father is. Abraham is our father, they say. The argument is very simple, right? Same as earlier. It's, it's not like they're even offering new evidence against Jesus. They're actually taking the same piece of information and they're just kind of trying to expand it. They're like a, you know, a rat with its tail caught trying to figure out how to take the same argument and try to make it different every time. So they're elevating the same argument they had earlier. Hey, we're descendants of Abraham. No, actually, we're, Abraham's our father. We are the seed of Abraham. And God promised to save all those who are of Abraham's household through circumcision. Now look, this is partially true, right? But it's not. It's so gloriously off the map, it's not even funny. Yes, God gave them, the, the, gave them circumcision so they could mark themselves off as God's people, but it was never that they were saved by these things. It was never that they were saved by their DNA. Right? No, Jesus' rebuttal is very simple, right? Jesus elevates the, with their argument with them. like He takes it to the next level with, okay, you're going to go up? I'm going to go up with you. If you truly were of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. And what did Abraham do? Abraham looked completely at the promises of God that were revealed to him. Abraham had his entire vision enraptured that day when God called him out and said, I'll take you to a land in which you, that I will show you. He gave his entire attention to those things because he knew that was the only hope he had. Abraham believed God, and it says he lived by faith. Uh, Hebrews 11, 8 through 12 tells us that Abraham lived by faith. By faith, Abraham was counted in Galatians 3 uh, as righteous, not because of his genealogical line or his DNA, but because of his faith in God's promises. That's important, because then to be a true seed of Abraham then, to rebut their argument that we are, he's our father, both then and now are those who are of faith in Christ. They looked for a land that was to come. They looked for the promises that were to be revealed. That's what Abraham did. We now look back at the ones that have been revealed in Christ. So all of ourselves are not bound up in certain things that we do. Rather, they are bound up in Christ. Rather, these guys are trying to kill the fountainhead of God's promises. That's what he says. If you really were what Abraham did, you would, you'd be living by faith, not trying to kill the one who comes to you and fulfills the promises of God. Amen? So then phony, phony faith... Is justification by outward means, outward act, acts, outward identities, right? 
I've been baptized. I go to church. I have the right perspective on cultural issues. Or, or like I said earlier, when people in the church say, hey, when the church going to rise up and confront all this stuff going on around us, that's dangerously close to phony faith. Why? Because the church's mission isn't to rise up and confront. The church's mission is to preach Jesus. Amen. And by doing so, we give a picture of a counter-kingdom. As I've said many times the last couple weeks. That we, the church, are the antitype picture of the kingdom of earth. Because we are picturing forth the kingdom of God. And then they go, okay, well, but God's our father. So they keep going up another notch, right? You just look what it says here. It says, uh, we weren't born in sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Now, that little, we weren't born in sexual morality is probably a little slap in the face of Jesus because of the fact he was born of a virgin. I'm sure they didn't believe that. So they say, well, we're born of the one true living God. We are his people. Forget about Abraham. We're actually his people. So you see how they're doing? They're, they're scrambling, trying to justify themselves. They're scrambling, trying to, under, trying to get what Jesus is trying to say to them. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here, for I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. In other words, God's genuine faith rests on um, genuine, I'm sorry, I got it right here. Genuine faith manifests a deep love for Jesus. A genuine faith is dependent on his finished work, while phony faith pretends to love God while denying the Son. And when we say we're denying the Son, it's those who deny saying that I need someone else. Like, I, like, I, could, like, like I need something else to clean me up. I, I can do this on my own. No, you can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. None of us can do it on, alone. The, the, the point we want to rest in here this morning is that God is, has revealed himself through these means... And he's not just done it just in this way where, where, we, where we are still left to do things on our own. And that we, like he takes us to a certain point, a certain place, a certain level. And all of a sudden we got to turn the engine on and we got to keep on chugging along like, like, good, little, like little, good little engines and trains that we want to be. Right? Jesus rebels says, you do, like, he didn't even bat an eyelash, by the way, at their whole little side comment about being born in sexual immorality when he knew that wasn't true. Rather, he goes right for the guttural. He says, you would love me if you understood that God gave the world his most, this, the, most, the most precious gift by means of virgin birth. There is not a hint of immorality in God. If you really knew who God was, you would know who I am, and therefore I'm not even going to justify for one second your little slap in the face. I'm not going to do it. In other words, what you're saying is you're saying God's a liar. How can God be your father if you're calling God a liar? Right? And why do you have this perspective? Because you are born of the father of lies. 
and you love him and his ways. That's what he says here in verse 44 through the end of our section here. You are, the fa- you are, you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? In other words, what Jesus is saying, the reason why you have this perspective is because you are born of the father of lies. You are not... And, and, and you are not only will not, but you cannot listen to my word. He even goes, far, goes so far as to say you have the same murderous and deceptive intentions that your true father has. You cannot see the truth because you do not believe me. You accuse me of sin, but you can't convict me of sin. Jesus is revealing and putting everything as plain as he possibly could. So Jesus comes full circle to this point. He says, those who are truly a God listen to God's word. There in verse 47. The one who is from God listens to God's words. And this is why you don't listen, because you, do not, you are not from him. It has nothing to do with their behavior. It has everything to do with who they see Jesus to be. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you understand who he is? To believe God's word is to to believe that Jesus is all that God sent him to be. Your full payment for sin. Your full resurrection to life. See, phony faith pretends to be God's people while despising their need of Jesus. And and despise our need of Jesus is to continue to put on pious, outward, self-constructed faith. I am religious. I am pious. I am... uh, I'm at church every Sunday. I I have Jesus stickers on my back of my car. I've got... whatever. I have all the right things... I believe there is a God. I believe he is the, the God who's in charge of everything. But I'm a moral person. I'm an upright standing person. And I stand on my own. This is the religion, religion that most in North America embrace. It's therapeutic. Meaning, it's all about how I feel. It's moralistic because it's based on my own behavior and actions, and it's deistic because it ultimately believes that God's not involved in the affairs of men. And unfortunately, this has infected many people in the pews too. And friends, this is what we need to wrestle with so that we do not fall into phony faith. Because genuine faith manifests, as I said already, a deep love for Jesus, a deep dependence on his work for us, and that is it. That is it. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't get your family more more on the right place. You can't 
You can't get your children in the right place. You can't get your marriage in the right place. Enough to make yourself holy enough to meet the standards of God. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. So there's my two concluding thoughts I have for you. A couple implications, and I want to ask you to think about a couple questions. And I'll make these quick. Genuine faith is a, a matter of accepting our total inability to overcome our own sin and slavery, but only through the sonship accomplished by Jesus that frees us from sin. The next time someone asks you, what does it mean to be a real Christian? It is to be a son of God because of the accomplishments of our elder brother Jesus on our behalf. That's what it means to be a Christian. And anyone who wants to add anything else to it will have to quibble with the Bible. Quibble with the scriptures. Genuine faith is accepting our total inability to overcome our own sin in slavery and only through the sonship that has been accomplished by the Son will set us free. But it's also genuine faith is to persevere to the end as you and I rest entirely in that. Not quibbling on the side, trying to do all these self-improvement projects that we do. Some may be good, some may be bad, but they're self-improvement projects that distract us from resting in Christ. Friends, the United States government will never be holy enough to meet God's standards. Right? Your bodies will never be healthy enough to meet God's standards. So it doesn't matter what, the, what you believe about vaccines or, 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 or masks or whatever else. The fact is, if we don't turn our attention completely entirely on Jesus, we have no hope. None. And the implications of this is very, very simple. The faith that keeps a Christian is the same faith that saves a Christian. The faith that keeps a Christian is the same faith that saves a Christian. Nothing less and nothing more. The, gospel, the Christians don't believe a gospel plus. Gospel plus this, gospel plus that. That's not your hope. That's not my hope. My hope is not in my own piety. My hope is not in my own revivalism or revivalistic efforts to self-improve myself. My hope is continually and by God's grace will always be the fact that I have no other recourse but to stand in delight of what has been accomplished for me in Christ Jesus. Christians, young and old, need to continually allow the gospel to shape and reshape their lives on every level until Jesus returns. End of discussion. Spurgeon's quote I put there in your notes. He who grows in grace knows that he is but dust. And therefore he does not expect his fellow Christians to be anything more. He overlooks 10,000 of their faults because he knows that his God has overlooked 20,000 of his own case. He does not expect perfection in the creature, and therefore he is not disappointed when he does not find it. Drop, mic, mic drop, right? Mic drop. 
Friends, are you and I willing to admit that we are children of wrath without the, without the gracious intervention of our Savior, Jesus Christ? And yes or no? Amen. If so, do people see that in us? Are we willing to admit that we are prone even now to fall in until Jesus returns to some forms of blindness and need for continual light of the gospel to illuminate our path? The answer should be yes. Do people see that? When people see your interactions with with things in the world, do they see Jesus or do they see something else entirely? The mark of a genuine believer is nothing less or nothing more than the faithful accomplishments of the Son to save sinners for himself. God, help us this morning as we finish up our time. We pray, God, that the message this morning would, would encourage us, would edify us, would challenge us as we continue to think about what it means to be your people in this day and age and as we wait till your return. God, be glorified now as we leave, as we prepare now for the table. And we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.